Welcome to The Screwball Story, the podcast that explores movies from one of classical Hollywood's most beloved genres, screwball comedy. I'm your host, Olympia Kiriakou, and each week I'll be taking you on a deep dive into one screwball classic. On this episode, we'll be exploring one of my all-time favorite romantic screwball comedies, Hands Across the Table, from 1935. Produced by Paramount Pictures, it was directed by Mitchell Lyson and stars Carol Lombard, Fred McMurray, Ralph Bellamy, Astrid Alwyn, Ruth Donnelly, and Marie Prevost. Hands Across the Table's protagonist, Reggie Allen, has one goal, to marry a rich man. She works as a manicurist at the Savoy Carlton Hotel in New York and befriends one of her clients named Alan. He has feelings for her, but she doesn't love him. She instead sets her sights on playboy Theodore Drew III, or Ted for short. After a bit of schmoozing, Ted invites Reggie out for a night on the town. However, he gets so drunk that he can't make it home. Reggie agrees to let him sleep on her sofa, which causes him to miss his cruise to Bermuda that he later reveals is a present from his wealthy, soon-to-be father-in-law. The next morning, Ted reveals that he's engaged to a so-called pineapple heiress, Vivian Snowden, and that he intends to marry her for her money. Realizing that they're both partners in the same game, Reggie invites him to stay with her for the week until the boat that he was supposed to be sailing on returns from Bermuda. Their feelings grow over the course of their week together, and they must decide whether they'll stick to their principles or give in to love. Hands Across the Table began as a short story of the same name by novelist and playwright Vigna Del Mar. In late 1934, Samuel Goldwyn optioned the story from Del Mar as a starring vehicle for Miriam Hopkins to be produced at United Artists. However, Goldwyn let his option lapse, so Del Mar changed the story's name from Hands Across the Table to Bracelets and took it to Paramount. Ernst Lubitsch, who was then Paramount's director of production, was very enthusiastic and bought the story with the intention of casting Claudette Colbert and Gary Cooper in the leading roles, with the ever-profitable Mitchell Lyson at the helm. Lubitsch hired Jack Kirkland to adapt Delmar's story for the screen. As Kirkland worked on a rough draft, Lubitsch was beginning to have second thoughts about his leading lady. Claudette Colbert had proven herself to be equally adept at light comedy as she was with melodrama, and by 1935 she was already one of Paramount's brightest stars. Lubitsch soon realized that Delmar's story would be the perfect star vehicle for a rising talent under contract with Paramount, Carol Lombard. After several years of middling performances in otherwise forgettable films, in early 1935, Lombard was still riding on her triumphant performance as Lily Garland in 20th Century. Hollywood began to take note of her potential as a comedian. Lubitsch recognized that it was the opportune time to explore her skills and develop a story to showcase her unique skill set. He replaced Jack Kirkland with Norman Krasna. While Krasna retooled the project to suit Lombard's strengths, Lubitsch gave Lombard six months vacation in preparation for the role and, for the first time in her career, director and co-star approval. In late June 1935, Variety reported that Gary Cooper would be replaced with Fred McMurray because of a shooting conflict with the film Peter Ibbotson. 
Mitchell Lyson suggested that he be replaced with Ray Milland, whom he had just worked with months earlier in the drama Four Hours to Kill, but Milland backed out because he believed he wasn't suited for yet another comedic role. Lubitsch then suggested Milland's The Gilded Lily co-star, Fred McMurray, whose success in that film prompted Paramount to market him as a romantic lead. Both Lombard and Lyson were impressed with McMurray's natural everyman aura and agreed that he would be perfectly suited for the role. To round out the cast, Lyson and Lubitsch selected snappy character actress Ruth Donnelly as Reggie's boss Laura and former Senate bathing beauty Marie Prevost as Reggie's dizzy best friend Nona. For the pineapple heiress, they chose Astrid Alwyn, a refined aristocratic beauty who would balance their earthy working class protagonist. Production on Hands Across the Table began in August of 1935, but according to Fred McMurray, he and Lombard first met weeks earlier in the Paramount Still Gallery. In an interview with licensed biographer David Kirichetti, McMurray said that he felt, quote, very awkward embracing Lombard, who he had never met before, in romantic promotional photos. Lombard was by then no stranger to the manufactured glamour of the studio publicity machine. So to lighten the mood, she cracked jokes and playfully ribbed him via what his biographer Charles Tranberg calls physical discomfort. McMurray did not begin his career as an actor, but as a musician. He played saxophone in several smaller bands before landing a gig with Gus Arnheim and his Coconut Grove Orchestra, where he performed as a feature vocalist on such tracks as All I Want Is Just One Girl and I'm In The Market For You. After a brief stint on Broadway, including a leading role in Three's A Crowd, McMurray signed with Paramount in 1934, with his first feature film being the aforementioned The Gilded Lily. By 1935, McMurray had nine film credits to his name, but it was clear to Lombard and Lyson that he was still nervous about tackling this big comedic role. Harkening back to the guidance Howard Hawks and John Barrymore gave her on 20th Century, Lombard tried to do the same for McMurray. Mitchell Lyson recalled, Carol was a great help to Fred. She'd get down on the floor and say, now be funny, Uncle Fred, or I'll pluck your eyebrows out. Lyson later recalled that Lombard worked as hard as I did to get that performance out of him. When the actor shot the scene where Reggie gives Ted a painful manicure, Lombard kicked McMurray's shins under the table just before the cameras would start rolling. She smiled sweetly and said, Loosen up, you big ape. It isn't going to hurt. McMurray admired Lombard's free spirit and believed that his performance was good if he could make her laugh. During the shoot, McMurray and Lombard developed a solid working relationship and, afterwards, a lifelong friendship. In their spare time, the actors would go duck hunting with Fred's first wife, Lillian Lamont, and Carol's second husband, Clark Gable. Or, they would get together for a simple barbecue at their San Fernando Valley ranches. Fred McMurray was a down-to-earth, congenial star and someone who never publicly commented about any of his co-stars. Privately, however, he admitted that he had two favorite leading ladies, Claudette Colbert and Carol Lombard. He told his second wife, June Haver, that the latter was the most fun to work with. With his characteristic humility, McMurray later said, I owe so much of my performance in Hands Across the Table and my subsequent career to Carol Lombard. McMurray's daughter, Kate, also revealed that Lombard was the one who encouraged him to fight for a higher salary at Paramount. As a tribute to his friend, he gave his other daughter, Susan, the middle name Carol.
Hands Across the Table opened in November 1935 to exceptional box office numbers and glowing critical reviews. The New York Times' Andre Sunwald called it uproariously funny, with some of the best dialogue that's come out of Hollywood in months. Playwright Philip Dunning called it Lombard's finest performance to date, while Photoplay described it as emblematic of her flair for sophisticated light comedy punctuated by telling tenderness. Similarly, The New Republic described hers and McMurray's performances as brimming with what they called subtlety, much resource in the matter of visual expression, and the opened, sustained kind of charm that can be projected through the shadow of a mile of celluloid. Paramount recognized the obvious bankability of McMurray and Lombard's screen chemistry, and paired them up three more times for The Princess Comes Across, True Confession, and Swing High, Swing Low, the latter also directed by Mitchell Lyson. It would also be the first of eight collaborations between McMurray and Lyson in both film and television. A recurring trope in scribble comedy is class consciousness, and what writer Wes Garing calls a Depression-era fascination with the upper classes. There are many examples where the rich are portrayed as buffoonishly out of touch and egotistical, but it's illustrated most pointedly in the opening scene of My Man Godfrey from 1936, where Fifth Avenue socialites Irene and Cornelia Bullock search through a city dump for a forgotten man as items for their scavenger hunt. Although there are rare moments of clarity in the screwball genre, the contrast between the rich and the working classes was meant to offer a humorous critique of upper-class frivolity, while acknowledging the urgent sense of despair rooted in 1930s American society. Hands Across the Table leans into this trope two ways. First, through Reggie's backstory, and second, through a visual comparison between her and Vivian. Early on in the film, Reggie explains her motivation for wanting to marry for money. She confides in Alan, on the terrace of his plush penthouse apartment. Gee, you're lucky. Won't you, Paul? Me? Well, who else? <laughs> That'll be all, Peter. Well, I'll try, but it may throw me. <laughs> oh! Try putting the other hand on the top. <laughs> oh, yeah, that's it. No, I get it. Two hands for beginners. <laughs> Why did you say I was lucky? You don't have to pretend. To be rich? Mm -hmm. You think a lot about money, don't you, Reggie? You've got it. You don't have to think about it, sugar. Uh, two, please, and a lemon. Well, I thought girls your age always thought about love. Oh, love. I don't want anything to do with it. Well, that's what you say now, Reggie. And maybe you may even mean it. Oh, I mean it all right. I think you're off on the wrong tack, Reggie. Wish I could show you how valueless money is. You can't. I know what love can get you into. I know what I got my mother into. She was young and pretty once. I saw her count pennies and wash and struggle until she was old and ugly. I heard her nagging my father until he hated to come home. You couldn't blame him. You couldn't blame anything but poverty. Alan's in disbelief. He tells her that she'll change her mind when the right man comes along. And of course, he means himself. Here's the rest of the scene. So sorry. The thing that worries me is you, your ideas. But you certainly seem to know what you want. I know a lot of things. You certainly do. 
And I'll bet you forget all of them when the right man comes along. No, I won't. You can't blame me for wanting the things I do. Every woman wants them. Only I say I do. Unlike my man Godfrey, the socioeconomic critique in Hands Across the Table is far more subtle. Alan and Vivian aren't necessarily caricatures because of their wealth, but neither Ted nor Reggie are villainous for wanting financial security. Reggie speaks with a hardness in her voice and professes to be a heel, but the film doesn't offer an explicit condemnation of her cynicism. Wealth is not simply desired for materialistic indulgence, but as a matter of practical necessity. Reggie aspires to live comfortably without experiencing her mother's struggles or unhappiness. Perhaps in another film or with another actress, Reggie could have been an unsympathetic gold digger. On paper, she checks all the boxes. But Lombard's performance here is subtle and poignantly self-critical. On some level, Reggie's stubborn and knows deep down that her approach to love is wrong. But she forges ahead as a means of self-preservation. She eventually accepts the error of her ways by the film's conclusion, but in a way that's neither prescriptive nor righteous. The film hammers this point home in the nuanced visual contrast between Reggie and Vivian, and for that, we must thank Mitchell Lyson. In Lyson, Lombard and Murray found a consummate esthete. He's been described as Paramount's answer to George Cukor because both directors understood how to make their leading ladies look beautiful. Lyson began his career as a set and costume designer, earning his only Academy Award nomination in 1930 for art direction for the Cecil B. DeMille drama Dynamite. He transitioned to directing not long thereafter, making his debut with the 1933 drama Cradle Song. In a 1983 interview with John A. Gallagher, Ralph Bellamy recalls that Lyson was meticulous director. He uh, had a great uh, artistic sense and a very sensitive guy. Lovely to work with. Under Lyson's direction and Lombard's frequent collaborator, cinematographer Ted Tetzlaff's masterful use of lighting, Lombard and McMurray are radiant. The film boasts some remarkable close-up shots of both stars, such as when Ted's lying in his makeshift bed, his bare muscles are lusciously bathed in the moonlight glow. But just as the woman's director designation is reductive to Cukor's brilliance, there's more to Lyson's style than just sophisticated flourish. Lyson was a generous and sensitive director who knew how to get the most out of his actors by playing to their strengths. In the case of Lombard and McMurray, he understood the value of their charisma, and Hands Across the Table is very much a study of star chemistry. Take, for example, what is arguably my favorite scene in any screwball comedy, where Reggie and Ted make a long-distance phone call to his fiancée, Vivian. This, of course, is where the character contrast that I mentioned earlier comes into play. Reggie pretends to be the long-distance telephone operator to help Ted keep up his Bermuda charade. Lombard holds her nose in order to make Reggie's telephone voice sound more nasally, and she really hams up her delivery. Hello? Hello? Hello, Miss Snowden? Bermuda calling, are you ready? This is Miss Snowden. Yes, I'm ready. Well, go ahead with Bermuda. <laughs> Hello, Vivian. Can you hear me? C can you hear me, Vivian? Hello, Ted. Yes, I can hear you perfectly. How are you, and when are you coming back? Oh, I'm fine, Vivian. Hey, I'll be back. Hello? Hello, Snowden, 82793. Miss Vivian Snowden, Bermuda calling. Hello? Hello? Hello, go ahead. Go ahead with Bermuda. Operator, I've got Bermuda. Will you please get off the line? Through cross-cutting, Lyson provides a neat juxtaposition between Reggie and Vivian, 
and crucially, Vivian's incompatibility with Ted. Sitting in her glass phone booth studded with orchids, Vivian wears a fancy evening gown and jewels. On the other end of the line, in her one-bedroom apartment, Reggie is dressed far more modestly, wearing a white apron over her simple black dress. Although Vivian and Ted are of similar class backgrounds, their disruptive telephone conversation is actually symbolic of their disunity. Hello, hello, Ted? Can you hear me? Y yes, Vivian, I can hear you. Hello, hello, Bermuda! Oh, operator, I've got Bermuda. Please get off the wire. Hello? Hello, Ted? Can you hear me, Vivian? What did you say, Ted? Hello? Uh, what? I can't hear you, Vivian. Can you... Hello, hello, Miss Stone. Miss Stone, do you want the charges reversed? Oh, operator, go away. Hello, Miss Stone. Miss Stone, Bermuda calling. Oh, I can't stand this. Hello, Ted? Ted? Hello? Hello? <laughs> Boy, is she mad. <laughs> I love my daffodil, too. Hello, get me the Bermuda operator, please. from Bermuda. Why, that's from New York. Are you sure? Vivian gets increasingly frustrated by the phone call, but we see Reggie and Ted giggling as they try to maintain their composure. Their synchronous natural giggles throughout the scene are clear evidence of their romantic connection. As they fall to the floor in a fit of laughter, their voices blend together in a joyous crescendo, and their bodies entwine on the ground as if they're one. We realize here that these two are meant to be together. Of this scene, Mitchell Lyson recalled, When they finished the take, Carol and Fred collapsed on the floor in laughter. They laughed until they couldn't laugh anymore. It wasn't in the script, but I made sure the cameras kept turning, and I used it in the picture. It's so hard to make actors laugh naturally. <sighs> I wasn't about to throw it out. Lombard and McMurray's other screen collaborations are equally alluring, and their opposing performance styles form the basis of the ideal screwball couple dynamic. Passion and capricious on the one hand, logic and patience on the other. The tangled romance in Hands Across the Table taps into a unique character dynamic, allowing them to meet somewhere in the middle. Opposite McMurray, Lombard's heroines take on a maturity and introspection that's equally matched by a lighthearted sparkle that he draws from her. The telephone scene is emblematic of McMurray and Lombard's comedic lockstep, but the actor's chemistry oozes off the screen in other scenes, too. Later on in the film, the pair come to a fork in the road. Will they, or won't they, finally admit their feelings for one another? Lyson sets a dreamy scene. Framed in long shot, McMurray and Lombard lay on a mattress just outside her bedroom window. Her radio, which is plugged into an outlet indoors and tethered to a long cord, plays a melodic tune called The Morning After. Ted croons along. McMurray's voice is smooth and comforting. A soft breeze ruffles the laundry hanging overhead. You can almost feel the soothing warmth of this late summer night. It's not a high-class setup, but it sure looks romantic. Snuggled up beside Ted, Reggie studies his face as he sings. Their feelings are practically at the back of their throats. 
it's clear that they love each other, but neither want to make the first move. The morning after, will you still recall the thrill we feel? You must have a lot of friends that could give you a job. It'd be a fine friend who'd give you a job. A friend of mine had better try anything like that on me. Hmm. What's the matter? You and your ideas. You wouldn't give an inch, would you? Nope. Would you? Would you? No. I wouldn't give an inch. Okay, then. Let's talk about something else. All right, what? Well, the stars up there, for instance. Boy, those really are stars, aren't they? Mm, yes, they are. I've never seen them so close before. Maybe they never have been. Have they, Reggie? Not to me. Oh. No, no, who's that? Oh, I forgot. I was a surprise for you. Oh, stay here, Reggie. That's the nicest present I could have. As McMurray sings, Lyson cuts to a medium close-up to convey the couple's intimacy. What makes McMurray and Lombard's chemistry so delicious is that so much of it comes from their body language. In the absence of actually admitting their feelings out loud, their forlorn glances, sighs, and physical closeness reveals the depths of their souls. This becomes more apparent later on in the film when they meet again on Reggie's rooftop. The same romantic melody plays in the background as Reggie and Ted each smoke cigarettes in their beds. They may be separated physically by distance and the bedroom wall, but their posture and movements are mirror images of each other, reminding us once again of their psychic bond. Reggie can't sleep, so she goes outside to get some air, and Ted follows her. Swell out here, isn't it? Yes, lovely. We can't. Why not? Oh, there's a hundred million miles between us. Oh, it doesn't seem that far. We're not for each other. I think we are. Six months you'd hate me. Have to. No, I wouldn't. I know better. You'd have to scratch for a living in a world you know nothing about. Isn't that what you're doing? I'm used to it. I could get used to it. It's too late. You couldn't fit yourself to being poor. Other people have done it. Yes, and there's no greater tragedy. With you, it would be a thousand times worse. You'd always know you could have been rich again if you hadn't been foolish. You'd be thinking about that all the time. You couldn't help it. Marry the rich one, Ted. Believe me, if I were you, that's what I'd do. Good night. Lyson's intimate framing and Ted Tetzlaff's sensual lighting elevate the romance of the scene. The hardness in Reggie's voice that I previously identified in her conversation with Alan rears its head again. Lombard uses it once more to show that Reggie protects herself from getting hurt and, in a way, prevents Ted from hating her. She tells him that he'd resent her for giving up his life of luxury and riches. She refuses to make eye contact with him, but Lombard's teary eyes and deep-toned voice tells us so much. When Reggie says, marry the rich one, Ted, that's exactly what I do. He grabs her shoulder. That small, intimate gesture says everything. He wants her, and Reggie knows it. 
By the end of the film, all of their repressed feelings bubble up to the surface, erupting in a mile-a-minute love confession in Alan's apartment. Hands Across the Table is not one of the snappy, fast-paced dialogue screwball comedies, and tonally, this concluding scene is a bit disjointed from the rest of the film. But from a genre perspective, I suspect that it was an excuse for Lyson to lean into that screwball style. Uh, did you find somebody with more pineapple? No, I found somebody who's crazy, as crazy as I am. Somebody I shouldn't even waste my time on. But like an imbecile, I fell in love with her. Love? Ha ha, you <laughs> fell in love. Yes, the I... The only one you're in love with is yourself. Is that so? You wouldn't give up your company. Yes, I fell in love. Funny, well, why I hope you happy. You do, I hope huh? you eat so many pineapples. I never thought I'd fall for the racket, but I do not know I like it. What do you think my apartment is, Madison Square Garden? Go someplace else and do your battling. Yes, what do you mean by coming up in this gentleman's apartment and making all this noise? Well, all right, let's go someplace where we can argue like gentlemen. Let go, Mary. Ouch! Come on, now. Alan, Alan, save me. Sir, you can't possibly stand all this. All right, Peter. Alan. Oh, Alan, you're so right. It is love the count. Goodbye. See you soon. Oh, sir, please. Uh, I forgot my hat. Goodbye, Miss Macklin. Thanks a lot. <laughs> Ted confesses his feelings for Reggie in a breathless pace, almost as if he's blurting everything out at once so she won't get a chance to turn him down. He tells her that he, quote, fell in love with someone crazy. That's typical characterization of classical-era screwball woman. In the pantheon of Lombard's heroines, Reggie's not actually crazy like some of her screwball sisters, so, admittedly, it's an odd description. But the antagonistic profession of love shows that, even in the final hour, Reggie and Ted have a hard time putting into words what's been made clear to us throughout the film in their body language. Reggie shouts back, matching Ted's tempo with breakneck pace. Lombard and McMurray's voices blend together in harmony. Ted pulls Reggie out of Alan's apartment by the wrist, and as he pulls her arm, Lombard slides across the threshold, a visual allusion to the idyllic matrimonial harmony that will follow. Few screwball films tell us what happens after the fairy tale Happily Ever After. Some, like Preston Sturgis's The Palm Beach Story, even poke fun at that trope, bookending the story with title cards that read, and they lived happily ever after, dot dot dot, or did they? This leaves open the possibility that the film's multiple marriages are not catch-all solutions for the combative couples. The weight of dot dot dot, or did they, cleverly alludes to the fact that the screwball couple's domestic bliss is merely a fantasy. But Hands Across the Table takes a decidedly more optimistic approach in its rendering of its main love story. Ted and Reggie are on the same page psychologically and physically. They are playful, energetic, and full of spunk personifying the charming and plucky screwball spirit. We know, beyond a shadow of a doubt, that these two will actually live happily ever after. That concludes this episode of The Screwball Story. The Screwball Story was researched, written, and recorded by me, Olympia Kiriakou. All of the resources used for this episode are listed in the show notes. If you'd like to stay up to date on future episode releases and other news, please follow us on Instagram or Twitter at The Screwball Story, or me, I'm at The Screwball Girl. Thank you for listening, and we'll meet again next time. Bye-bye. <laughs>